To support the political education project, Socialist Think Tank are providing podcasts of the readings for the course. We hope this helps more people to have the chance to participate fully. Apologies for any pronunciations we may get wrong. We're learning too. Disclaimer, there is a word that I wasn't comfortable saying. I don't think any offence was intended by Hal Draper when he used them. The word is of its time, but it's not of this time. And it isn't a word in my current vocabulary. I thought it was important to mention that, but I have stayed historically accurate and true to the words said at that time. The red flag flag in session one, we will be looking at what is socialism. The first of these readings is Hal Draper, The Two Souls of Socialism. Hal Draper, The Two Souls of Socialism. Socialism's crisis today is a crisis in the meaning of socialism. For the first time in the history of the world, very likely a majority of its people label themselves socialist in one sense or another. But there has never been a time when the label was less informative. The nearest thing to a common content of the various socialisms is a negative, anti-capitalism. On the positive side, the range of conflicting and incompatible ideas that call themselves socialist is wider than the spread of ideas within the bourgeois world. Even anti-capitalism holds less and less as a common factor. In one part of the spectrum, a number of social democratic parties have virtually eliminated any specifically socialist demands from their programs, promising to maintain private enterprise wherever possible. The most prominent example is the German social democracy. As an idea, a philosophy, and a social movement, socialism in Germany is no longer represented by a political party, sums up D.A. Chalmers' recent book, The Social Democratic Party of Germany. These parties have defined socialism out of existence, but the tendency which they have formalized is that of the entire reformist social democracy. In what sense are these parties still socialist? In another part of the world picture, there are the communist states whose claim to being socialist is based on a negative, the abolition of capitalist private profit system and the fact that the class which rules does not consist of private owners of property. On the positive side, however, the socio-economic system which has replaced capitalism there would not be recognizable to Karl Marx. The state owns the means of production, but who owns the state? Certainly not the mass of workers who are exploited, unfree, and alienated from all levers of social and political control. A new class rules, the bureaucratic bosses. It rules over a collectivist system, a bureaucratic collectivism. Unless statification is mechanically equated with socialism, in what sense are these societies socialist? These two self-styled socialisms are very different, but they have more in common than they think. The social democracy has typically dreamed of socialising capitalism from above. Its principle has always been that increased state intervention in society and economy is per se socialistic. 
It bears a fatal family resemblance to the Stalinist conception of imposing something called socialism from the top down and of equating statification with socialism. Both have their roots in the ambiguous history of the socialist idea. Back to the roots. The following pages propose to investigate the meaning of socialism historically in a new way. There have always been different kinds of socialism and they have customarily been divided into reformist or revolutionary, peaceful or violent, democratic or authoritarian, etc. These divisions exist, but the underlying division is something else. Throughout the history of socialist movements and ideas, the fundamental divide is between socialism from above and socialism from below. What unites the many different forms of socialism from above is the conception that socialism, or a reasonable facsimile thereof, must be handed down to the grateful masses in one form or another by a ruling elite which is not subject to their control, in fact. The heart of socialism from below is its view that socialism can be realised only through the self-emancipation of activised masses in motion, reaching out for freedom with their own hands, mobilised from below in a struggle to take charge of their own destiny, as actors, not merely subjects, on the stage of history. The emancipation of the working classes must be conquered by the working classes themselves, this is the first sentence in the rules written for the first international by Marx, and this is the first principle of his life work. It is the conception of socialism from above which accounts for the acceptance of communist dictatorship as a form of socialism. It is the conception of socialism from above which concentrates social democratic attention on the parliamentary superstructure of society and on the manipulation of the commanding heights of the economy and which makes them hostile to mass action from below. It is socialism from above, which is the dominant tradition in the development of socialism. Please note that it is not peculiar to socialism. On the contrary, the yearning for emancipation from above is the all-pervading principle through centuries of class society and political oppression. It is the permanent promise held out by every ruling power to keep the people looking upward for protection instead of to themselves for liberation from the need for protection. The people look to kings to right the injustices done by lords to messiahs to overthrow the tyranny of kings. Instead of the bold way of a mass action from below, it is always safer and more prudent to find the good ruler who will do the people good. The pattern of emancipation from above goes all the way back in the history of civilization and had to show up in socialism too. But it is only in the framework of the modern socialist movement that liberation from below could become even a realistic aspiration. Within socialism, it has come to the fore, but only by fits and starts. The history of socialism can be read as a continual but largely unsuccessful effort to free itself from the old tradition the tradition of emancipation from above. In the conviction that the current crisis of socialism is intelligible only in terms of this great divide in the socialist tradition, we turn to a few examples of the two souls of socialism. 1. Some Socialist Ancestors Karl Kotsky, the leading theoretician of the Second International, 
began his book on Thomas More with the observation that the two great figures inaugurating the history of socialism are More and Munzer, and that both of them follow the long line of socialists from Lycurgus and Pythagoras to Plato, the Gracchi, Catiline, Christ. This is a very impressive list of early socialists, and considering his position, Kotsky should certainly have been able to recognize a socialist when he saw one. What is the most fascinating about this list is the way it falls apart under examination into two quite different groups. Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus led the early socialists to adopt him as the founder of Spartan communism. This is why Kotsky lists him. But as described by Plutarch, the Spartan system was based on equal division of land under private ownership. It was in no way socialistic. The collectivist feeling one may get from a description of the Spartan regime comes from a different direction. The way of life of the Spartan ruling class itself, which was organized as a permanent disciplined garrison in a state of siege, and to this, add the terroristic regime imposed over the helots, slaves, I do not see how a modern socialist can read of the Lycurgan regime without feeling that he is meeting not an ancestor of socialism, but a forerunner of fascism. There is quite a difference. But how is it that it did not impress itself on the leading theoretician of social democracy? Pythagoras founded an elite order which acted as the political arm of the landed aristocracy against the plebeian democratic movement. He and his party were finally overthrown and expelled by a popular revolutionary rising. Kotsky seems to be on the wrong side of the barricades, but besides, inside the Pythagorean order, a regime of total authoritarianism and regimentation prevailed. In spite of this, Kotsky chose to regard Pythagoras as a socialist ancestor because of the belief that the organized Pythagoreans practiced communal consumption. Even if this were true, and Kotsky found out later it was not, this would have made the Pythagorean order exactly as communistic as any monastery. Chalk up a second ancestor of totalitarianism on Kotsky's list. The case of Plato's Republic is well enough known. The sole element of communism in his ideal state is the prescription of monastic communal consumption for the small elite of guardians who constitute the bureaucracy and army. But the surrounding social system is assumed to be private property holding, not socialistic. And here it is again. Plato's state model is governed by an aristocratic elite and his argument stresses that democracy inevitably means the deterioration and ruin of society. Plato's political aim, in fact, was the rehabilitation and purification of the ruling aristocracy in order to fight the tide of democracy. To call him a socialist ancestor is to imply a conception of socialism which makes any kind of democratic control irrelevant. On the other hand, Catiline and the Gracchi had no collectivist side. Their names are associated with mass movements of popular democratic revolt against the establishment. They were not socialists, to be sure, but they were on the popular side of the class struggle in the ancient world, the side of the people's movement from below. 
It seems it was all the same to the theoretician of social democracy. Here, in the prehistory of our subject, there are two kinds of figures ready-made for adoption into the pantheon of the socialist movement. There were the figures with a tinge of alleged collectivism, who were yet thorough elitists, authoritarians, and anti-democrats. And there were the figures without anything collectivist about them, who were associated with democratic class struggles. There is a collectivist tendency without democracy, and there is a democratic tendency without collectivism, but nothing yet which merges these two currents. Not until Thomas Munzer, the leader of the revolutionary left wing of the German Reformation, do we find a suggestion of such a merger, a social movement with communistic ideas, which was also engaged in a deep going popular democratic struggle from below. In contrast is precisely Sir Thomas Moore. The gulf between these two contemporaries goes to the heart of our subject. Moore's utopia pictures a thoroughly regimented society, more reminiscent of 1984 than of socialist democracy, elitist through and through, even slaveholding, a typical socialism from above. It is not surprising that of these two socialist ancestors who stand at the threshold of the modern world, one, Moore, execrated the other and supported the hangmen who did him and his movement to death. What then is the meaning of socialism when it first came into the world? From the very beginning, it was divided between the two souls of socialism and there was a war between them. Two, the first modern socialists. Modern socialism was born in the course of the half a century or so that lies between the great French revolution and the revolutions of 1848. So was modern democracy. But they were not born linked like Siamese twins. They travelled at first along separate lines. When did the two lines first intersect? Out of the wreckage of the French Revolution rose different kinds of socialism. We will consider three of the most important in the light of our question. Babeuf. The first modern socialist movement that was led in the last phase of the French Revolution by Babeuf, the conspiracy of the equals, conceived as a continuation of revolutionary Jacobinism, plus a more consistent social goal, a society of communist equality. This represents the first time in the modern era that the idea of socialism is wedded to the idea of a popular movement, a momentous combination. This combination immediately raises a critical question. What exactly in each case is the relationship that is seen between this socialist idea and that popular movement? This is the key question for socialism in the next 200 years. As the Babovas saw it, the mass movement of the people has failed. The people seem to have turned their backs on the revolution, but still they suffer. Still, they need communism. We know that. The revolutionary will of the people has been defeated by a conspiracy of the right. What we need is a cabal of the left to recreate the people's movement, to effectuate the most revolutionary will. We must therefore seize power. 
but the people are no longer ready to seize power. Therefore, it is necessary for us to seize power in their name, in order to raise the people up to that point. This means a temporary dictatorship, admittedly by a minority, but it will be an educational dictatorship, aiming at creating the conditions which will make possible democratic control in the future. In that sense, we are Democrats. This will not be a dictatorship of the people, as was the commune, let alone of the proletariat. It is frankly a dictatorship over the people with very good intentions. For most of the next 50 years, the conception of the educational dictatorship over the people remains the program of the revolutionary left. Through the three Bs, Babeuf to Buenarroti to Blanqui, and with anarchist verbiage added, also Bakunin. The new order will be handed down to the suffering people by the revolutionary band. This typical socialism from above is the first and most primitive form of revolutionary socialism but there are still today admirers of Castro and Mao who think it is the last word in revolutionism. 2. Saint-Simon Emerging from the revolutionary period, a brilliant mind took an entirely different tack. Saint-Simon was impelled by a revulsion order against revolution, disorder and disturbances. What fascinated him was the potentialities of industry and science. His vision had nothing to do with anything resembling equality, justice, freedom, the rights of man, or allied passions. It looked only to modernization, industrialization, planning divorced from such considerations. Planned industrialization was the key to the new world, and obviously the people to achieve this were the oligarchies of financiers and businessmen, scientists, technologists, managers. When not appealing to these, he called on Napoleon or his successor, Louis XVIII, to implement schemes for a royal dictatorship. His schemes varied, but they were all completely authoritarian to the last planned ordinance. A systematic racist and a militant imperialist, he was the furious enemy of the very idea of equality and liberty, which he hated as offspring of the French Revolution. It was only in the last phase of his life, 1825, that disappointed in the response of the natural elite to do their duty and impose the new modernizing oligarchy, he made a turn towards appealing to the workers down below. The new Christianity would be a popular movement, but its role would be simply to convince the powers that be to heed the advice of the San Simonian planners. The workers should organize to petition their capitalists and managerial bosses to take over from the idle classes. What then was his relationship between the idea of planned society and the popular movement? The people, the movement, could be useful as a battering ram in someone's hands. Saint-Simon's last idea was a movement from below to effectuate a socialism from above. Power and control must remain where it has always been, above. 3. The Utopians A third type of socialism that arose in the post-revolutionary generation was that of the utopian socialist proper. Robert Owen, Charles Fourier, 
Etienne Cabar, etc. They blueprinted an ideal communal colony, imagined full-blown from the cranium of the leader, to be financed by the grace of the philanthropic rich under the wing of benevolent power. Owen, in many ways the most sympathetic of the lot, was as categorical as any of them. This great change must and will be accomplished by the rich and powerful. There are no other parties to do it. It is a waste of time, talent and pecuniary means for the poor to contend in opposition to the rich and powerful. Naturally, he was against class hate, class struggle. Of the many who believe this, few have written so bluntly that the aim of this socialism is to govern or treat all society as the most advanced physicians govern and treat their patients in the best arranged lunatic hospitals, with forbearance and kindness, for the unfortunates who have become so through the irrationality and injustice of the present most irrational system of society. Cabe's society provided for elections, but there could be no free discussion and a controlled press, systematic indoctrination and completely regimented uniformity was insisted on as part of the prescription. For these utopian socialists, what was the relationship between the socialist idea and the popular movement? The latter was the flock to be tended by the Good Shepherd. It must not be supposed that a socialism from above necessarily implies cruelly despotic intentions. This side of these socialisms from above is far from outlived. On the contrary, it is so modern that a modern writer like Martin Buber in Pasts of Utopia can perform the remarkable feat of treating the old utopians as if they were great democrats and libertarians. This myth is quite widespread and it points once again to the extraordinary insensitivity of socialist writers and historians to the deep-rooted record of socialism from above as the dominant component in the two souls of socialism. 3. What Marx did Utopianism was elitist and anti-democratic to the core because it was utopian. That is, it looked to the prescription of a prefabricated model the dreaming up of a plan to be willed into existence. Above all, it was inherently hostile to the very idea of transforming society from below by the upsetting intervention of freedom-seeking masses, even where it finally accepted recourse to the instrument of a mass movement for pressure upon the tops. In the socialist movement, as it developed before Marx, nowhere did the line of the socialist idea intersect the line of democracy from below. This intersection, this synthesis, was the great contribution of Marx. In comparison, the whole context of his capital is secondary. This is the heart of Marxism. This is the law. All the rest is commentary. The Communist Manifesto of 1848 marked the self-consciousness of the first movement in Engels' words, whose notion was from the very beginning that the emancipation of the working class must be the act of the working class itself. The young Marx himself went through the more primitive stage, just as the human embryo goes through the gill stage. Or to put it differently, one of his first immunizations was achieved by catching the most pervasive disease of all, the illusion of the saviour despot, 
When he was 22, the old Kaiser died, and to the Hosannas of the Liberals, Friedrich Wilhelm IV acceded to the throne amidst expectations of democratic reforms from above. Nothing of the sort happened. Marx never went back to this notion, which has bedeviled all of socialism with its hopes in saviour dictators or saviour presidents. Marx entered politics as the crusading editor of a newspaper which was the organ of the extreme left of the liberal democracy of the industrialised Rhineland and soon became the foremost editorial voice of complete political democracy in Germany. The first article he published was a polemic in favour of the unqualified freedom of the press from all censorship by the state. By the time the imperial government forced his dismissal, he was turning to find out more about the new socialist ideas coming from France. When this leading spokesman of liberal democracy became a socialist, he still regarded the task as the championing of democracy, except that democracy now had a deeper meaning. Marx was the first socialist thinker and leader who came to socialism through the struggle for liberal democracy. In manuscript notes made in 1844, he rejected the extant crude communism, which negates the personality of man and looked to a communism which would be a fully developed humanism. In 1845, he and his friend Engels worked out a line of argument against the elitism of a social current represented by one Bruno Bauer. In 1846, they were organising the German Democratic Communists in Brussels' exile, and Engels was writing, In our time, democracy and communism are one. Only the proletarians are able to fraternise really under the banner of communist democracy. In working out the viewpoint which first wedded the new communist idea to the new democratic aspirations, they came into conflict with the existing communist sects, such as that of Wheatling, who dreamed of a messianic dictatorship. Before they joined the group, which became the Communist League, for which they were to write the Communist Manifesto, they stipulated that the organisation be changed from an elite conspiracy of the old type into an open propaganda group, that everything conducive to a superstitious authoritarianism be struck out of the rules, that the leading committee be elected by the whole membership as against the tradition of decisions from above. They won the league over to their new approach, and in a journal issued in 1847, only a few months before the Communist Manifesto, the group announced, We are not among those communists who are out to destroy personal liberty, who wish to turn the world into one huge barrack or into a gigantic workhouse. There certainly are some communists who, with easy conscience, refuse to countenance personal liberty and would like to shuffle it out of the world because they consider that it is a hindrance to complete harmony. But we have no desire to exchange freedom for equality. We are convinced that in no social order will personal freedom be so assured as in a society based upon communal ownership. Let us put our hands to work in order to establish a democratic state wherein each party would be able by word or in writing to win a majority over to its ideas. The Communist Manifesto, which issued out of these discussions, 
proclaimed that the first objective of the revolution was to win the battle for democracy. When two years later, and after the decline of the 1848 revolutions, the Communist League split, it was in conflict once again with the crude communism of putschism, which thought to substitute determined bands of revolutionaries for the real mass movement of an enlightened working class. Marx told them, the minority makes mere will the motive force of the revolution instead of actual relations. Whereas we say to the workers, you will have to go through 15 or 20 or 50 years of civil wars and internal wars, not only in order to change extant conditions, but also in order to change yourselves and to render yourselves fit for political dominion. You, on the other hand, say to the workers, we must attain to power at once or else we may just as well go to sleep. In order to change yourselves and render yourselves fit for political dominion, this is Marx's program for the working class movement. As against both those who say the workers can take power any Sunday and those who say never. Thus, Marxism came into being in self-conscious struggle against the advocates of the educational dictatorship, the saviour dictators, the revolutionary elitists and the communist authoritarians, as well as the philanthropic do-gooders and the bourgeois liberals. This was Marx's Marxism, not the caricatured monstrosity which is painted up with that label by both the establishment's professoriate, who shudder at Marx's uncompromising spirit of revolutionary opposition to the capitalist status quo, and also by the Stalinists and neo-Stalinists, who must conceal the fact that Marx cut his eye teeth by making war on their type. It was Marx who finally fettered the two ideas of socialism and democracy together, because he developed a theory which made the synthesis possible for the first time. The heart of the theory is this proposition, that there is a social majority which has the interests and motivation to change the system, and that the aim of socialism can be the education and mobilization of this mass majority. This is the exploited class, the working class, from which comes the eventual motive force of revolution. Hence, a socialism from below is possible on the basis of a theory which sees the revolutionary possibilities in the broad masses, even if they seem backward at a given time and place. Capital, after all, is nothing but the demonstration of the economic basis of this proposition. It is only some such theory of working class socialism which makes possible the fusion of revolutionary socialism and revolutionary democracy. We are not arguing at this point our conviction that this faith is justified, but only insisting on the alternative. All socialists or would-be reformers who repudiate it must go over to some socialism from above, whether of the reformist, utopian, bureaucratic, Stalinist, Maoist or Castroite variety, and they do. Five years before the Communist Manifesto, a freshly converted 23-year-old socialist had still written in the old elitist tradition, we can recruit our ranks from those classes only which have enjoyed a pretty good education, that is from universities and from the commercial class. The young Engels learned better, but this obsolete wisdom is still with us as ever. Four, 
The Myth of Anarchist Libertarianism One of the most thoroughgoing authoritarians in the history of radicalism is none other than the father of anarchism, Proudhon, whose name is periodically revived as a great libertarian model because of his industrious repetition of the word liberty and his invocations to a revolution from below. Some may be willing to pass over his Hitlerite form of anti-Semitism. The Jew is the enemy of humankind. It is necessary to send this race back to Asia or exterminate it. Or his principled racism in general. He thought it was right for the South to keep American Negroes in slavery, since they were the lowest of inferior races. Or his glorification of war for his own sake, in the exact manner of Mussolini or his view that women had no rights. I deny her every political right and every initiative. For woman, liberty and well-being lie solely in marriage, in motherhood, in domestic duties. That is, the Kinderkirch Kush of the Nazis. But it is not possible to gloss over his violent opposition, not only to trade unionism and the right to strike, even supporting police strike-breaking, but to any and every idea of the right to vote, universal suffrage, popular sovereignty, and the very idea of constitutions. All this democracy disgusts me. What I would not give to sail into this mob with my clenched fists. His notes for his ideal society notably included suppression of all other groups, any public meeting by more than 20, any free press, and any elections. In the same notes, he looks forward to a general inquisition and the condemnation of several million people to forced labour once the revolution is made. Behind all this was a fierce contempt for the masses of people, the necessary foundation of socialism from above, as its opposite was the groundwork of Marxism. The masses are corrupt and hopeless, I worship humanity, but I spit on men. They are only savages whom it is our duty to civilize and without making them our sovereign. He wrote to a friend whom he scornfully chided with. You still believe in the people. Progress can come only from mastery by an elite who take care to give the people no sovereignty. At one time or another, he looked to some ruling despot as the one-man dictator who would bring the revolution. Louis Bonaparte, he wrote a whole book in 1852 extolling the emperor as the bearer of the revolution. Prince Jerome Bonaparte, finally Tsar Alexander II, do not forget the despotism of the Tsar was necessary to civilization. There was a candidate for the dictator's job closer to home, of course, himself. He elaborated a detailed scheme for a mutualist business cooperative in form, which would spread to take over all business and then the state. In his notes, Proudhon put himself down as the manager-in-chief, naturally not subject to the democratic control he so despised. He took care of details in advance, draw up a secret program for all the managers, irrevocable elimination of royalty, democracy, proprietors, religion, and so on. The managers are the natural representatives of the country. Ministers are only superior managers or general directors, as I will be one day. 
when we are masters. Religion will be what we want it to be. Ditto education, philosophy, justice, administration, and government. The reader, who may be full of the usual illusions about anarchist libertarianism, may ask, was he then insincere about his great love for liberty? Not at all. It is only necessary to understand what anarchist liberty means. Proudhon wrote, the principle of liberty is that of the Abbey of Thelem. Do what you want. And the principle meant any man who cannot do what he wants and anything he wants has the right to revolt, even alone against the government, even if the government were everybody else. The only man who can enjoy this liberty is a despot. This is the sense of the brilliant insight by Dostoevsky's Shigalev. Starting from unlimited freedom, I arrive at unlimited despotism. The story is similar with the second father of anarchism, Bakunin, whose schemes for dictatorship and suppression of democratic control are better known than Proudhon's. The basic reason is the same. Anarchism is not concerned with the creation of democratic control from below, but only with the destruction of authority over the individual, including the authority of the most extremely democratic regulation of society that is possible to imagine. This has been made clear by authoritative anarchist expositors time and again. For example, by George Woodcock, even were democracy possible, the anarchist would still not support it. Anarchists do not advocate political freedom. What they advocate is freedom from politics. Anarchism is on principle fiercely anti-democratic, since an ideally democratic authority is still authority. But since rejecting democracy, it has no other way of resolving the inevitable disagreements and differences among the inhabitants of the Thermae. Its unlimited freedom for each uncontrolled individual is indistinguishable from the unlimited despotism by such an individual, both in theory and in practice. The great problem of our age is the achievement of democratic control from below over the vast powers of modern social authority. Anarchism, which is freest of all with verbiage about something from below, rejects this goal. It is the other side of the coin of bureaucratic despotism, with all its values turned inside out, not the cure or the alternative. LaSalle and State Socialism That very model of a modern social democracy, the German Social Democratic Party, is often represented as having arisen on a Marxist basis. This is a myth, like so much else in extant histories of socialism. The impact of Marx was strong, including on some of the top leaders for a while, but the politics which permeated and finally pervaded the party came mainly from two other sources. One was LaSalle, who founded German Socialism as an organised movement, 1863. And the other was the British Fabians, who inspired Edward Bernstein's revolutionism. 5. LaSalle and State Socialism 
That very model of a modern social democracy, the German Social Democratic Party, is often represented as having arisen on a Marxist basis. This is a myth, like so much else in the extant histories of socialism. The impact of Marx was strong, including on some of the top leaders for a while, but the politics which permeated and finally pervaded the party came mainly from two other sources. One was LaSalle, who founded German socialism as an organised movement, 1863, and the other was the British Fabians, who inspired Eduard Bernstein's revisionism. Ferdinand Lazal is the prototype of the state socialist, which means one who aims to get socialism handed down by the existing state. He was not the first prominent example, that was Louis Blanc, but for him, the existing state was the Kaiser state under Bismarck. The state LaSalle told the workers, is something that will achieve for each one of us what none of us could achieve for himself. Marx taught the exact opposite, that the working class had to achieve its emancipation itself and abolish the existing state in the course. E. Bernstein was quite right in saying that LaSalle made a veritable cult of the state. The immemorial vestal fire of all civilization, the state, I defend you against those modern barbarians, the liberal bourgeois, LaSalle told a Prussian court. This is what made Marx and LaSalle fundamentally opposed, points out LaSalle's biographer Footman, who lays bare his pro-Prussianism, pro-Prussian nationalism, and pro-Prussian imperialism. LaSalle organised this first German socialist movement as his personal dictatorship. Quite consciously, he set about building it as a mass movement from below, to achieve a socialism from above. Remember San Simon's battering ram. The aim was to convince Bismarck to hand down concessions, particularly universal suffrage, on which basis a parliamentary movement under LaSalle could become a mass ally of the Bismarckian state in a coalition against the liberal bourgeoisie. To this end, LaSalle actually tried to negotiate with the Iron Chancellor, sending him the dictatorial statutes of his organisation as the constitution of my kingdom, which perhaps you will envy me, LaSalle went on. But this miniature will be enough to show how true it is that the working class feels an instinctive inclination towards a dictatorship, if it can first be rightly persuaded that the dictatorship will be exercised in its interests, and how much, despite all Republican views, or rather precisely because of them, it would therefore be inclined, as I told you only recently, to look upon the crown in opposition to egoism of bourgeois society as the natural representative of the social dictatorship, if the crown for its part could ever make up its mind to the certainly very improbable step of striking out a really revolutionary line and transforming itself from the monarchy of the privileged orders into a social and revolutionary people's monarchy. Although this letter was not known at the time, Marx grasped the nature of Lasallianism perfectly. He told Lasalle to his face that he was a Bonapartist and wrote presciently that his attitude is that of the future workers' dictator. Lasalle's tendency he called Royal Prussian Government Socialism, denouncing his alliance with absolutist and feudal opponents against the bourgeoisie. Instead of the revolutionary process of transformation of society, wrote Marx, 
LaSalle sees socialism arising from the state aid that the state gives to the producers' cooperative societies and which the state, not the worker, calls into being. Marx derides this, but as far as the present cooperative societies are concerned, they are of value only insofar as they are in... But as far as the present cooperative societies are concerned, they are of value only insofar as they are the independent creations of the workers and not prodigies either of the government or the bourgeoisie. Here is a classic statement of the meaning of the word independent as the keystone of socialism from below versus state socialism. There is an instructive insistence of what happens when an American-type academic anti-Marxist runs into this aspect of Marx. Mayo's Democracy and Marxism, later revised as Introduction to Marxist Theory, handily proves that Marxism is anti-democratic mainly by the simple expedient of defining Marxism as the Moscow orthodoxy. But at least he seems to have read Marx and realised that nowhere in acres of writing and a long life did Marx evince concern about more power for the state, but rather the reverse. Marx, it dawned on him, was not a statist. The popular criticism levelled against Marxism is that it tends to degenerate into a form of statism. At first sight, i.e. reading, the criticism appears wider than Marx, for the virtue of Marx's political theory is the entire absence from it any glorification of the state. This discovery offers a notable challenge to Marx critics, who of course know in advance that Marxism must glorify the state. Mayo solves the difficulty in two statements. One, the statism is implicit in the requirements of total planning. Two, look at Russia. But Marx made no fetish of total planning. He has so often been denounced by other Marx critics for failing to draw up a blueprint of socialism precisely because he reacted so violently against his predecessors, utopian planism, or planning from above. Planism is precisely the conception of socialism that Marxism wished to destroy. Socialism must involve planning, but total planning does not equal socialism. Just as any fool can be a professor, but not every professor need be a fool. Six, the Fabian model. In Germany, behind the figure of LaSalle, there shades off a series of socialisms moving in an interesting direction. The so-called academic socialists, socialists of the chair, Katha de Socialisten, a current of establishment academics, look to Bismarck more openly than LaSalle, but their conception of state socialism was not in principle alien to his. Only LaSalle embarked on the risky expedient of calling into being a mass movement from below for the purpose, risky because once in motion it might get out of hand, as indeed it did more than once. Bismarck himself did not hesitate to represent his paternalistic economic policies as a kind of socialism, and books got written about monarchical socialism, Bismarckian state socialism, etc. Following further to the right, one comes to the socialism of Friedrich List, a proto-Nazi 
and to those circles where an anti-capitalist form of anti-Semitism, during Wagner, etc., lays part of the basis of the movement that called itself socialism under Adolf Hitler. The thread that unites this whole spectrum through all the differences is the concept of socialism as equivalent merely to state intervention in economic and social life. Stat grief zoo, LaSalle called, state take hold of things. This is the socialism of the whole lot. This is why Schumpeter is correct in observing that the British equivalent of German state socialism is Fabianism, the socialism of Sidney Webb. The Fabians, more accurately the Webbians, are, in the history of socialist idea, that modern socialist current which developed in a more complete divorcement from Marxism. It was almost chemically pure social democratic reformism, unalloyed, particularly before the rise of mass labour and socialist movement in Britain, which it did not want and it did not help to build, despite a common myth to the contrary. It is therefore a very important test, unlike most other reformist currents, which paid their tribute to Marxism by adopting some of its language and distorting its substance. The Fabians, deliberately middle class in composition and appeal, were not for building any mass movement at all, least of all the Fabian one. They thought of themselves as a small elite of brain trusters who would permeate the existing institutions of society, influence the real leaders in all spheres, Tory or liberal, and guide social development towards its collectivist goal with the inevitability of gradualness. Since their conception of socialism was purely in terms of state intervention, national or municipal, and their theory told them that capitalism itself was being collectivized apace every day and had to move in this direction. Their function was simply to hasten the process. The Fabian Society was designed in 1884 to be pilot fish to a shark. At first, the shark was the Liberal Party, but when the permutation of liberalism failed miserably and Labour finally organized its own class party despite the Fabians, the pilot fish simply reattached itself. There is perhaps no other socialist tendency which so systematically and even consciously worked out its theory as a socialism from above. The nature of this movement was earlier recognised, though it was later obscured by the merging of Fabianism into the body of labour reformism. The leading Christian socialist inside the Fabian society once attacked Webb as a bureaucratic collectivist perhaps the first use of that term. Hilaire Belloc's once famous book of 1912 on the servile state was largely triggered by the web type whose collectivist ideal was basically bureaucratic. G.D.H. Cole reminisced, the webs in those days used to be fond of saying that everyone who was active in politics was either A or a B, an anarchist or a bureaucrat and that they were bees. These characterizations scarcely convey the full flavor of the Webbian collectivism that was Fabianism. It was through and through managerial, technocratic, elitist, authoritarian, planist. Webb was fond of the term wire-pulling, almost as a synonym for politics. A Fabian publication wrote that they wished to be the Jesuits of socialism, the gospel was order and efficiency. 
The people who should be treated kindly were fit to be run only by competent experts. Class struggle, revolution, and popular turbulence were insanity. In Fabianism and the Empire, imperialism was praised and embraced. If ever the socialist movement developed its own bureaucratic collectivism, this was it. It may be thought that socialism is essentially a movement from below, a class movement, wrote a Fabian spokesman, Sidney Ball, to disabuse the reader of this idea. But now socialists approach the problem from the scientific rather than the popular view. They are middle-class theorists, he boasted, going on to explain that there is a distinct rupture between the socialism of the street and the socialism of the chair. The sequel is also known, though often glossed over. While Fabianism, as a special tendency, petered out into the larger stream of Labour Party reformism by 1918, the leading Fabians themselves went in another direction. Both Sidney and Beatrice Webb, as well as Bernard Shaw, the top trio, became principal supporters of Stalinist totalitarianism in the 1930s. Even earlier, Shaw, who thought socialism needed a superman, had found more than one. In turn, he embraced Mussolini and Hitler as benevolent despots to hand socialism down to the yahoos, and he was disappointed only that they did not actually abolish capitalism. In 1931, Shaw disclosed after a visit to Russia that the Stalin regime was really Fabianism in practice. The Webbs followed to Moscow and found God. In their Soviet communism, a new civilization, they proved, right out of Moscow's own documents and Stalin's own claims industriously researched, that Russia is the greatest democracy in the world. Stalin is no dictator. Equality reigns for all. The one-party dictatorship is needed. The Communist Party is thoroughly democratic, elite, bringing civilization to the Slavs and the Mongols, but not Englishmen. Political democracy has failed in the West anyway, and there is no reason why political parties should survive in our age. They staunchly supported Stalin through the Moscow Purge trials and the Hitler-Stalin Pact without a more visible qualm, and died more uncritical pro-Stalinist than can now be found in the Politburo. As Shaw has explained, the Webbs had nothing but scorn for the Russian Revolution itself, but the Webbs waited until the wreckage and ruin of the change had ended, its mistakes remedied, and the communist state fairly launched. That is, they waited until the revolutionary masses had been straitjacketed and the leaders of the revolution cashiered. The efficient tranquility of dictatorship had settled on the scene the counter-revolution firmly established, and then they came along to pronounce it the ideal. Was this really a gigantic misunderstanding, some incomprehensible blunder? Or were they not right in thinking that this indeed was the socialism that matched their ideology, give or take a little blood? The swing of Fabianism from middle-class permutation to Stalinism was the swing of a door that was hinged on socialism from above. If we look back at the decades just before the turn of the century that launched Fabianism on the world, another figure looms, the antithesis of Webb, the leading personality of revolutionary socialism in that period, the poet and artist William Morris, who became a socialist and Marxist in his late 40s. Morris's writings on socialism 
breathe from every pore the spirit of socialism from below, just as every line of Webbs is the opposite. This is perhaps clearest in his sweeping attacks on Fabianism for the right reasons, his dislike of the Marxism of the British edition of LaSalle, the dictatorial H.M. Hindman, his denunciations of state socialism, and his repugnance at the bureaucratic collectivist utopia of Bellamy's looking backwards. The last moved him to remark, if they brigaded me into a regiment of workers, I'd just lie on my back and kick. Morris's socialist writings are pervaded with his emphasis from every side on class struggle from below, in the present. And as for the socialist future, his news from nowhere was written as the direct antithesis of Bellamy's book. He warned that individual men cannot shuffle off the business of life onto the shoulders of an abstraction called the state, but must deal with it in conscious association with each other. Variety of life is as much an aim of true communism as a quality of condition, and nothing but a union of these two will bring about real freedom. Even some socialists, he wrote, are apt to confuse the cooperative machinery towards which modern life is tending with the essence of socialism itself. This meant the danger of the community falling into bureaucracy. Therefore, he expressed fear of a collectivist bureaucracy lying ahead. Reacting violently against state socialism and reformism, he fell backwards into an anti-parliamentarianism, but he did not fall into the anarchist trap. People will have to associate in administration, and sometimes there will be differences of opinion. What is to be done? Which party is to give way? Our anarchist friends say that it must not be carried by a majority. In that case, then, it must be carried by a minority. And why? Is there any divine right in a minority? This goes to the heart of anarchism far more deeply than the common opinion that the trouble with anarchism is that it is over-idealistic. William Morris versus Sidney Webb. This is one way of summing up the story. 7. The Revisionist Facade Edward Bernstein, the theoretician of social democratic revisionism, took his impulsion from Fabianism, by which he was heavily influenced in his London exile. He did not invent the reformist policy in 1896. He merely became its theoretical spokesman. The head of the party bureaucracy preferred less theory. One doesn't say it, one does it, he told Bernstein meaning that the politics of German social democracy had been gutted of Marxism long before its theoreticians reflected the change. But Bernstein did not revise Marxism. His role was to uproot it while pretending to prune away withered limbs. The Fabians had not needed to bother with pretense, but in Germany it was not possible to destroy Marxism by a frontal attack. The reversion to socialism from above had to be presented as a modernization, a revision. Essentially, like the Fabians, revisionism found its socialism in the inevitable collectivization of capitalism itself. It saw the movement towards socialism as the sum of the collectivist tendencies imminent in capitalism itself. It looked to the self-socialization of capitalism from above, through the institutions of the existing state. The equation of statification equals socialism is not the invention of Stalinism. 
it was systemized by the Fabian revisionist state socialist current of social democratic reformism. Most of the contemporary discoveries which announce that socialism is obsolete because capitalism no longer really exists can already be found in Bernstein. It was absurd to call Weimar Germany capitalist, he declared, because of the controls exercised over the capitalists. It follows from Bernstein that the Nazi state was even more anti-capitalist as advertised. The transformation of socialism into bureaucratic collectivism is already implicit in Bernstein's attack on workers' democracy. Denouncing the idea of workers' control of industry, he proceeds to redefine democracy. Is it government by the people? He rejects this in favour of the negative definition, absence of class government. Thus, the very notion of workers' democracy as a sine qua non of socialism is junked as effectively as by the clever redefinitions of the democracy current in the communist academies. Even political freedom and representative institutions have been defined out, a theoretical result all the more impressive since Bernstein himself was not personally anti-democratic like LaSalle or Shaw. It is the theory of socialism from above which requires these formulations. Bernstein is the leading social democratic theoretician, not only of the equation statification equals socialism, but also of the disjunction of socialism from workers' democracy. It was fitting, therefore, that Bernstein should come to the conclusion that Marx's hostility to the state was anarchistic and that LaSalle was right in looking to the state for the initiation of socialism. The administrative body of the visible future can be different from the present-day state only in degree, wrote Bernstein. The withering away of the state is nothing but utopianism, even under socialism. Bernstein contrasted his own vision of the road to socialism with that of Marx. Marx's is the picture of an army. It presses forward through detours over sticks and stones. Finally, it arrives at a great abyss. Beyond it, there stands beckoning the desired goal, the state of the future, which can be reached only through at sea, a red sea, as some have said. In contrast, Bernstein's vision was not red, but roseate. The class struggle softens into harmony as a beneficent state gently changes the bourgeois into good bureaucrats. It didn't happen that way. When the Bernsteinized social democracy first shot down the revolutionary left in 1919, and then reinstating the unregenerate bourgeoisie and the military in power, helped to yield Germany into the hands of the fascists. If Bernstein was the theoretician of the identification of bureaucratic collectivism with socialism, then it was his left-wing opponent in the German movement who became the leading spokesman in the Second International of a revolutionary democratic socialism from below. This was Rosa Luxemburg, who so emphatically put her faith and hope in the spontaneous struggle of a free working class that the myth-makers invented for her a theory of spontaneity which she never held, a theory in which spontaneity is counterposed to leadership. In her own movement, she fought hard against the revolutionary elitists 
who rediscovered the theory of educational dictatorship over the workers. It is rediscovered in every generation as the very latest thing and had to write without the conscious will and the conscious action of the majority of the proletariat, there can be no socialism. We will never assume governmental authority except through the clear unambiguous will of the vast majority of the German working class. And her famous aphorism, mistakes committed by a genuinely revolutionary labor movement are much more fruitful and worthwhile historically than the infallibility of the very best central committee. Rosa Luxemburg versus Edward Bernstein. This is the German chapter of the story. Eight, the 100% American scene. At the wellsprings of American native socialism, the picture is the same, only more so. If we overlook the imported German socialism, Vassalian, with Marxist trimmings, of the early Socialist Labour Party, then the leading figure here is, far and away, Edward Bellamy and his Looking Backward, 1887. Just before him came the now-forgotten Lawrence Gronland, whose Cooperative Commonwealth, 1884, was extremely influential in its day, selling 100,000 copies. Gronland is so up-to-date that he does not say he rejects democracy. He merely redefines it as administration by the competent, as against government by majorities. Together with a modest proposal to wipe out representative government as such, as well as all parties. All the people want, he teaches, is administration, good administration. They should find the right leaders and then be willing to thrust their whole collective power into their hands. Representative government will be replaced by the plebiscite. He is sure that his scheme will work, he explains, because it works so well for the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Naturally, he rejects the horrible idea of class struggle. The workers are incapable of self-emancipation, and he specifically denounces Marx's famous expression of this first principle. The Yahoos will be emancipated by an elite of the competent, drawn from the intelligentsia, and at one point he sets out to organise a secret conspiratorial American socialist fraternity for students. Bellamy's socialist utopia in Looking Backwards is expressly modelled on the army as the ideal pattern of society, regimented, hierarchically ruled by an elite, organised from the top down, with the cosy communion of the beehive as the great end. The story itself pictures the transition as coming through the concentration of society into one big business corporation, a single capitalist, the state. Universal suffrage is abolished. All organisations from below eliminated. Decisions are made by administrative technocrats from above. As one of his followers defined this American socialism, its social idea is a perfectly organized industrial system which, by reason of the close interlocking of its wheels, shall work at a minimum of friction with a maximum of wealth and leisure to war. As in the case of the anarchists, Bellamy's fanciful solution to the basic problem of socialization how to resolve differences of ideas and interests among men, is the assumption, 
that the elite will be superhumanly wise and incapable of injustice, essentially the same as the Stalinist totalitarian myth of the infallibility of the party. The point of the assumption being that it makes unnecessary any concern about democratic control from below. The latter is unthinking for Bellamy because the masses, the workers, are simply a dangerous monster, the barbarian horde. The Bellamyite movement, which calls itself nationalism and originally set out to be both anti-socialist and anti-capitalist, was systematically organised on a middle-class appeal like the Fabians. Here were the overwhelmingly popular educators of the native wing of American socialism, whose conceptions echoed through the non-Marxist and anti-Marxist sectors of the socialist movement well into the 20th century, with a resurgence of Bellamy clubs even in the 1930s, when John Dewey eulogised looking backwards as expounding the American ideal of democracy. Technocracy, which already reveals fascist features openly, was a lineal descendant of this tradition on one side. If one wants to see how thin the line can be between something called socialism and something like fascism, it is instructive to read the monstrous exposition of socialism written by the once famous inventor scientist and socialist party luminary, Charles P. Steinmetz. His America and the New Epoch, 1916, sets down in deadly seriousness exactly the anti-utopia once satirised in the science fiction novel in which Congress has been replaced by direct senators from DuPont, General Motors and other great corporations. Steinmetz, presenting the giant monopolistic corporations like his own employer, General Electric, as the ultimate in industrial efficiency, proposes to disband the political government in favour of direct rule by the associated corporate monopolists. Bellamyism started many on the road to socialism, but the road forked. By the turn of the century, American socialism developed the world's most vibrant antithesis to socialism from above in all its forms, Eugene Debs. In 1897, Debs was still at the point of asking none other than John D. Rockefeller to finance the establishment of a socialist utopian colony in a Western state. But Debs, whose socialism was forged in the class struggle of a militant labour movement, soon found his true voice. The heart of Debsian socialism was its appeal to, and faith in, the self-activity of the masses from below. Debs' writings and speeches are impregnated with this theme. He often quoted or paraphrased Marx's first principle in his own words. The great discovery the modern slaves have made is that they themselves, their freedom must achieve. This is the secret of their solidarity, the heart of their hope. His classic statement is this. Too long have the workers of the world waited for some Moses to lead them out of bondage. He has not come. He will never come. I will not lead you out if I could. For if you could be led out, you could be led back again. I would have you make up your own minds that there is nothing you cannot do for yourselves. He echoed Marx's words of 1850. In the struggle of the working class to free itself from wage slavery, it cannot be repeated too often that everything depends on the working class itself. 
The simple question is, can the workers fit themselves by education, organization, cooperation, and self-imposed discipline to take control of the productive forces and manage industry in the interests of the people and for the benefit of society? That's all there is to it. Can the workers fit themselves? He was under no starry-eyed illusions about the working class as it was or is. But he proposed a different goal than the elitists whose sole wisdom consists in pointing a finger at the backwardsness of the people now and in teaching that this must always be so. As against the faith in elite rule from above, Debs counterpoised the directly contrary notion of the revolutionary vanguard, also a minority, whose faith impels them to advocate a harder road for the majority. It is the minorities who have made the history of this world, he said in the 1917 anti-war speech for which Wilson's government jailed him. It is the few who have had the courage to take their places at the front, who have been true enough to themselves to speak the truth that was in them, who have dared oppose the establishment order of things, who have espoused the cause of the suffering, struggling poor, who have upheld without regard to personal consequence the cause of freedom and righteousness. This Debsian socialism evoked a tremendous response from the heart of people, but Debs had no successor as a tribune of revolutionary democratic socialism. After the post-war period of radicalization, the Socialist Party became pinkly respectable on one hand and the Communist Party became Stalinized on the other. On its side, American liberalism itself had long been undergoing a process of statification, culminating in the Great New Deal illusion of the 1930s. The elite vision of a dispensation from above under the aegis of the saviour president attracted a whole strain of liberals to whom the country gentleman in the White House was as Bismarck to LaSalle. The type had been heralded by Lincoln Steffens, the collectivist liberal who, like Shaw and George Sorrell, was attracted to Mussolini as to Moscow, and for the same reasons. Upton Sinclair, quitting the Socialist Party as too sectarian, launched his broad movement to end poverty in California with a manifesto appropriately called I, Governor of California, and how I ended poverty probably the only radical manifesto with two eyes in the title, on the theme of socialism from up in Sacramento. One of the typical figures of the time was Stuart Chase, who wove a zigzag course from the reformism of the League of Industrial Democracy to the semi-fascism of technocracy. There were the Stalinoid intellectuals who managed to sublimate their joint admiration for Roosevelt and Russia by hailing both the NRA and the Moscow trials. There were signs of the times like Paul Blanchard, who defected from the Socialist Party to Roosevelt on the ground that the New Deal programme of managed capitalism had taken the initiative in economic change away from the Socialists. The New Deal often rightly called America's social democratic period, was also the liberals and social democrats' big fling at socialism from above, the utopia of Roosevelt's people's monarchy, 
the illusion of the Rooseveltian revolution from above, uniting creeping socialism, bureaucratic liberalism, Stalinoid elitism, and illusions about both Russia collectivism and collectivized capitalism in one package. Nine, six strains of socialism from above. We have seen there are several different strains or currents running through socialism from above. They are usually intertwined, but let us separate out some of the more important aspects for a closer look. One, philanthropism. Socialism or freedom or what have you is to be handed down in order to do the people good by the rich and powerful out of the kindness of their hearts. As the Communist Manifesto put it, with the early utopians like Robert Owen in mind, only from the point of view of being the most suffering class does the proletariat exist for them. In gratitude, the downtrodden poor must above all avoid getting rambunctious and no nonsense about class struggle or self-emancipation. This aspect may be considered a special case of two, elitism. We have mentioned several cases of this conviction that socialism is the business of a new ruling minority, non-capitalist in nature and therefore guaranteed pure, imposing its own domination either temporarily for a mere historical era or even permanently. In either case, this new ruling class is likely to see its goal as an educational dictatorship over the masses, to do them good, of course. The dictatorship being exercised by an elite party which suppresses all control from below or by benevolent despots or saviour leaders of some kind or by Shaw's supermen, by eugenic manipulators, by Proudhon's anarchist managers or Saint-Simon's technocrats or their more modern equivalents with up-to-date terms and new verbal screens which can be hailed as fresh social theory against 19th century Marxism. On the other hand, the revolutionary democratic advocates of socialism from below have also always been a minority, but the chasm between the elitist approach and the vanguard approach is crucial. As we have seen in the case of Debs, for him, as for Marx and Luxembourg, the function of the revolutionary vanguard is to impel the mass majority to fit themselves to take power in their own name through their own struggles. The point is not to deny the critical importance of minorities, but to establish a different relationship between the advanced minority and the more backwards mass. Three, planism. The key words are efficiency, order, planning, system, and regimentation. Socialism is reduced to social engineering by a power above society. Here again, the point is not to deny that effective socialism requires overall planning and also that efficiency and order are good things, but the reduction of socialism to planned production is an entirely different matter. Just as effective democracy requires the right to vote, but the reduction of democracy merely the right to vote once in a while makes it a fraud. As a matter of fact, it would be important to demonstrate that the separation of planning from democratic control from below makes a mockery of planning itself. For the immensely complicated industrial societies of today cannot be effectively planned 
by an all-powerful Central Committee Eucasis, which inhibit and terrorize the free play of initiative and correction from below. This is indeed the basic contradiction of the new type of exploiting social system represented by Soviet bureaucratic collectivism, but we cannot pursue this subject further here. The substitution of planism for socialism has a long history, quite apart from its embodiment in the Soviet myth that statification equals socialism, a tenet which we have already seen to have been first systemized by social democratic reformers, Bernstein and the Fabians particularly. During the 1930s, the mystique of the plan, taken over in part from Soviet propaganda, became prominent in the right wing of the social democracy, with Henry de Man hailed as its prophet and successor to Marx. De Man faded from view and is now forgotten because he had the bad judgment to push his revisionist theories first into corporatism and then into collaboration with the Nazis. Aside from theoretical construction, planism appears in the socialist movement most frequently embodied in a certain psychological type of radical. To give credit due, one of the first sketches of this type came in Belloc's The Servile State, with the Fabians in mind. This type, writes Belloc, loves the collectivist ideal in itself because it is an ordered and regular form of society. He loves to consider the ideal of a state in which land and capital shall be held by public officials who shall order other men about and so preserve them for the consequences of their vice, ignorance and folly. Belloc writes further, in him, the exploitation of man excites no indignation. Indeed, he is not a type to which indignation or any other lively passion is familiar. Belloc's eye is on Sidney Webb here. The prospect of a vast bureaucracy wherein the whole of life shall be scheduled and appointed to certain simple schemes gives his small stomach a final satisfaction. As far as concerns contemporary examples with a pro-Stalinist coloration, Examples of Gogo can be found in the pages of Paul Sweezy's magazine, Monthly Review. In a 1930 article on the motive patterns of socialism, written when he still thought he was a Leninist, Max Eastman distinguished this type as he centred on efficiency and intelligent organisation, a veritable passion for a plan, business-like organisation. For such, he commented, Stalin's Russia has a fascination. It is a region at least to be apologized for in other lands, certainly not denounced from the standpoint of a mad dream, like emancipation of the workers and there with all mankind. In those who built the Marxian movement and those who organized its victory in Russia, that mad dream was the central motive. They were, as some are now prone to forget, extreme rebels against oppression. Lenin will perhaps stand out when the commotion about his ideas subsides as the greatest rebel in history. His major passion was to set men free. If a single concept must be chosen to summarize the goal of the class struggle as defined in Marxian writings, and especially in the writings of Lenin, human freedom is the name for it. It might be added that more than once Lenin decried the push for total planning as bureaucratic utopia. There is a subdivision under planism which deserves a name too. Let us call it productionism. Of course, everyone is for production, 
just as everyone is for virtue and the good life. But for this type, production is the decisive test and end of a society. Russian bureaucratic collectivism is progressive because of the statistics of pig iron production. The same type usually ignores the impressive statistics of increased production under Nazi or Japanese capitalism. It is all right to smash or prevent free trade unions under Nasser, Castro, Sukarno, or Nkrumah, because something known as economic development is paramount over human rights. This hard-boiled viewpoint was, of course, not invented by these radicals, but by the callous exploiters of labor in the capitalist industrial revolution. And the socialist movement came into existence fighting tooth and nail against these theoreticians of progressive exploitation. On this score too, apologists for modern leftist authoritarian regimes tend to consider this hoary doctrine as the newest revelation of sociology. Four, communionism. In his 1930 article, Max Eastman called this the United Brotherhood pattern of the gregarian or human solidarity socialists. Those yearning with a mixture of religious mysticism and animal gregariousness for human solidarity. It should not be confused with the notion of solidarity in strikes, etc. And not necessarily identified with what is commonly called comradeship in the socialist movement or a sense of community elsewhere. Its specific content, as Eastman says, is seeking for a submersion in totality, seeking to lose himself in the bosom of a substitute for God. Eastman here is pointing to the Communist Party writer, Mike Gold. Another excellent case is Harry F. Ward, the Communist Party's hardy clerical fellow traveler, whose books theorize this kind of oceanic yearning for the shucking off of one's individuality. Bellamy's notebooks reveal him as a classic case. He writes about the longing for absorption into the grand omnipotency of the universe. His religion of solidarity reflects his mistrust of the individualism of the personality, his craving to dissolve the self into communion with something greater. This strain is very prominent in some of the most authoritarian of the socialisms from above and is not seldom met in milder cases like the philanthropic elitists with Christian socialist views. Naturally, this kind of communionist socialism is always hailed as an ethical socialism and praised for holding class struggle in horror, for there must be no conflict inside a beehive. It tends to flatly counterpose collectivism to individualism, a false opposition from a humanist standpoint, but what it really impugns is individuality. Five, permeationism. Socialism from above appears in many varieties for the simple reason that there are always many alternatives to the self-mobilization of the masses from below. But the cases discussed tend to divide into two families. One has the perspective of overthrowing the present capitalist hierarchical society in order to replace it with a new non-capitalist type of hierarchical society based on a new kind of elite ruling class. These varieties are usually ticketed revolutionary in histories of socialism. 
The other has the perspective of permeating the centers of power in the existing society in order to metamorphose it gradually, inevitably, into a statified collectivism, perhaps molecule by molecule, the way wood petrifies into a gate. This is the characteristic stigmatum of the reformist social democratic varieties of socialism from above. The very term permeationism was invented for self-description by what we have already called the purest variety of reformism ever seen, Sidney Webb's Fabianism. All social democratic permeationism is based on a theory of mechanical inevitability, the inevitable self-collectivization of capitalism from above, which is equated with socialism. Pressure from below, where considered permissible, can hasten and straighten the process provided it is kept under control to avoid frightening the self-collectivizers. Hence, the social democratic permeationists are not only willing but anxious to join the establishment rather than to fight it, in whatever capacity they are allowed to join it, whether as cabin boys or cabinet ministers. Typically, the function of their movement from below is primarily to blackmail the ruling powers into buying them off with such opportunities for permeation. The tendency towards collectivization of capitalism is indeed a reality, as we have seen. It means the bureaucratic collectivization of capitalism. As this process has advanced, the contemporary social democracy has itself gone through a metamorphosis. Today, the leading theoretician of this neo-reformism, C.A.R. Crossland, denounces as extremist the mild statement favoring nationalization, which was originally written for the British Labour programme by none other than Sidney Webb with Arthur Henderson. The number of continental social democracies that have now purged their programmes of all specifically anti-capitalist content, a brand new phenomenon in socialist history, reflects the degree to which the ongoing process of bureaucratic collectivization is accepted as an instalment of petrified socialism. This is permeationism as a grand strategy. It leads, of course, to permeationism as a political tactic, a subject we cannot here pursue beyond mentioning its presently most dominant US form, the policy of supporting the Democratic Party and the Lab coalition around the Johnson Consensus, its predecessors and successors. The distinction between these two families of socialism from above holds for homegrown socialism, from Babeuf to Harold Wilson, that is, cases where the social base of the given socialist current is inside the national system, be it the labour aristocracy or de class elements or any other. The case is somewhat different from those socialisms from outside, represented by the contemporary communist parties, whose strategy and tactics depend on the last analysis on a power base outside any of the domestic social strata, that is, on the bureaucratic collectivist ruling classes of the East. The communist parties have shown themselves uniquely different from any kind of homegrown movement in their capacity to alternate or combine both the revolutionary oppositionist and the permeationist tactics to suit their convenience. Thus, the American Communist Party could swing from its ultra-left adventurous third period of 1928 to 1934 into the ultra-permeationist tactic 
of the popular front period, then back into fire-breathing revolutionism during the Hitler-Stalin pact period, and again during the ups and downs of the Cold War into various degrees of combination of the two. With the current communists split along Moscow-Peking line, the Khrushchevites and the Maoists tend each to embody one of the two tactics which formerly alternated. Frequently, therefore, in domestic policy, the official Communist Party and the Social Democrats tend to converge on the policy of permeationism, though from the angle of a different socialism from above. 6. Socialism from outside The preceding varieties of socialism from above look to power at the tops of society. Now we have come to the expectation of succour from the outside. The flying saucer cult is a pathological form. Messianism, a more traditional form, when outside means out of this world, but for the present purposes, outside means outside of the social struggle at home. For the communists of East Europe after World War II, the new order had to be imported on the Russian bayonets. For the German social democrats in exile, liberation of their own people could finally be imagined only by grace of foreign military victory. The peacetime variety is socialism by model example. This, of course, was the method of the old utopians who built their model colonies in the American backwoods in order to demonstrate the superiority of their system and convert the unbelievers. Today, it is this substitute for social struggle at home which is increasingly the essential hope of the communist movement in the West. The model example is provided by Russia, or China for the Maoists, and while it is difficult to make the lot of the Russian proletariat half attractive to the Western workers, even with a generous dose of lies, there is more success to be expected from the two other approaches. A. The relatively privileged position of managerial, bureaucratic, and intellectual flunky elements in the Russian collectivist system can be pointedly contrasted with the situation in the West, where these same elements are subordinated to the owners of capital and manipulators of wealth. At this point, the appeal of the Soviet system of statified economy coincides with the historic appeal of middle-class socialisms to disgruntled class elements of intellectuals, technologists, scientists and scientific employees, administrative bureaucrats and organisation men of various types who can most easily identify themselves with a new ruling class based on state power rather than on money power and ownership and therefore visualise themselves as the new men of power in non-capitalist but elitist setup. B. While the official communist parties are required to maintain the facade of orthodoxy in something called Marxism-Leninism, it is more common that serious theoreticians of neo-Stalinism, who are not tied to the party, do free themselves from the pretense. One development is the open abandonment of any perspective of victory through social struggle inside the capitalist countries. The world revolution is equated simply with the demonstration by communist states that their system is superior. This has now been put into thesis form by two leading theoreticians of neo-Stalinism, Paul Sweeney and Isaac Ducher. 
Baron and Sweezy's Monopoly Capitalism 1966 flatly rejects the answer of traditional Marxist orthodoxy that the industrial proletariat must eventually rise in revolution against its capitalist oppressors. Same for all the other outsider groups of society, unemployed, farm workers, ghetto masses, etc. They cannot constitute a coherent force in society. This leaves no one. Capitalism cannot be effectively challenged from within. What then? Someday the authors explain on their last page, perhaps not in the present century, the people will be disillusioned with capitalism as the world revolution spreads and as the socialist countries show by their example that it is possible to build a rational society. That is all. Thus, the Marxist phrases filling the other 366 pages of this essay become simply an incantation like the reading of the Sermon of the Mount at St. Patrick's Cathedral. The same perspective is presented less bluntly by a more circumlocutus writer in Deutsche's The Great Contest. Deutsche transmits the new Soviet theory that Western capitalism will succumb not so much or not directly because of its own crisis and contradictions as because of its inability to match the achievements of socialism, i.e. the communist states. And later on, it may be said that this has to some extent replaced the Marxist prospect of a permanent social revolution. Here we have a theoretical rationale for what has long been the function of the communist movement in the West to act as a border guard and shill for the competing rival establishment in the East. Above all, the perspective of a socialism from below becomes alien to these professors of bureaucratic collectivism as to the apologists for capitalism in the American academies. This type of neo-Stalinist ideologist is often critical of the actual Soviet regime. A good example is Deutsche, who remains as far as possible from being an uncritical apologist for Moscow, like the official communists. They must be understood as being permeationist with respect to bureaucratic collectivism. What appears as a socialism from outside when seen from the capitalist world becomes a sort of Fabianism when viewed from within the framework of the communist system. Within this context, change from above is only as firm a principle for these theoreticians as it was for Sidney Webb. This was demonstrated inter alia by Deutsche's hostile reaction to the East German revolt of 1953 and to the Hungarian revolution of 1956 on the classical ground that such upheavals from below would scare the Soviet establishment away from its course of liberalization by the inevitability of gradualness. 10. Which side are you on? From the point of view of intellectuals who have a choice of roles to play in the social struggle, the perspective of socialism from below has historically had little appeal. Even within the framework of the socialist movement, it has had few consistent exponents and not many inconsistent ones. Outside the socialist movement, naturally, the standard line is that such ideas are visionary, impractical, unrealistic, utopian, idealistic perhaps, but quixotic. The mass of people are congenitally stupid, corrupt, apathetic, and generally hopeless, 
and progressive change must come from superior people, rather like, as it happens, the intellectual oppressing these sentiments. This is translated theoretically into an iron law of oligarchy, or a tiny law of elitism, in one way or another, involving a crude theory of inevitability, the inevitability of change from above only. Without presuming to review in a few words the arguments pro and con for this pervasive view, we can note the social role it plays as the self-justificatory right of the elitist. In normal times, when the masses are not moving, the theory simply requires pointing with scorn, while the whole history of revolution and social upheaval is simply dismissed as obsolete. But the recurrence of revolutionary upheavals and social disturbances defined precisely by the intrusion onto the historical stage of previous inactive masses and characteristic of periods when basic social changes on the agenda, it is just as normal in history as the intervening periods of conservatism. When the elitist theorist therefore has to abandon the posture of the scientific observer who is merely predicting that the mass of the people will always continue quiescent when he is faced with the opposite reality of a revolutionary mass threatening to subvert the structure of power. He is typically not behindhand in switching over to an entirely different track, denouncing mass intervention from below as evil in itself. The fact is the choice between socialism from above and socialism from below is, for the intellectual, basically a moral choice Whereas for the working masses who have no social alternative, it is a matter of necessity. The intellectual may have the option of joining the establishment where the worker does not. The same option holds for labor leaders who, as they rise out of their class, likewise confront a choice that did not exist before. The pressure of conformity to the mores of the ruling class, the pressure for the bourgeoisification is stronger in proportion as personal and organizational ties with the ranks below become weak. It is not hard for an intellectual or bureaucratized official to convince himself that permeation of and adaption to the existing power is the smart way to do it, when, as it happens, it also permits sharing in the perquisites of influence and affluence. It is an ironic fact, therefore, that the iron law of oligarchy is ironclad mainly for the intellectual elements from whom it arises. As a social stratum, i.e. apart from exceptional individuals, intellectuals have never been known to rise against establishment power in anything like the way the modern working class has done time and again through its relatively brief history. Functioning typically as the ideological flunkies of the established rulers of society, the brain worker sector of the non-propertied middle class is yet, at the same time, moved to discontent and disgruntlement by the relationship. Like many another servant, this admirable Crichton thinks, I'm a better man than my master, and if things were different, we would see who should bend the knee. More than ever in our day, when the credit of the capitalist system is disintegrating throughout the world, he easily dreams of a form of society in which he can come into his own, in which the brain and not the hands or money bags would dictate. 
in which he and his similars would be released from the pressure of property through the elimination of capitalism and released from the pressure of the more numerous masses through the elimination of democracy. Nor does he have to dream very far, for existing versions of such a society seem to be before his eyes in the Eastern collectivisms. Even if he rejects these versions for various reasons, including the Cold War, he can theorize his own version of a good kind of bureaucratic collectivism to be called meritocracy or managerialism or industrialism or what have you in the US or African socialism in Ghana and Arab socialism in Cairo or various other kinds of socialism in other parts of the world. The nature of the choice between socialism from above and socialism from below stands out most starkly in connection with a question on which there is a considerable measure of agreement among liberal, social democratic and Stalinoid intellectuals today. This is the alleged inevitability of authoritarian dictatorships, benevolent despotisms, in the newly developing states of Africa and Asia particularly, e.g. Nkrumah, Nasser, Sukarno et al., dictatorships which crush independent trade unions as well as all political opposition and organize to maximize the exploitation of labor in order to extract from the hides of the working masses sufficient capital to hasten industrialization at the tempo which the new rulers desire. Thus, to an unprecedented degree, progressive circles which once could have protested injustice anywhere have become automatic apologists for any authoritarianism which is considered non-capitalist. Apart from the economic determinist rationale usually given for this position, there are two aspects of the question which illuminate what is broadly at stake. One, the economic argument for dictatorship purporting to prove the necessity of breakneck industrialization is undoubtedly very weighty for the new bureaucratic rulers who meanwhile do not stint their own revenue and aggrandizement, but it is incapable of persuading the worker at the bottom of the heap that he and his family must bow to super exploitation and super sweating for some generations ahead for the sake of a quick accumulation of capital. In fact, this is why breakneck industrialization requires dictatorial controls. The economic determinist argument is the rationalization of a ruling class viewpoint. It makes human sense only from a ruling class viewpoint, which of course is always identified with the needs of society. It makes equally good sense that the workers at the bottom of the heap must move to fight this super exploitation to defend their elementary human dignity and well-being. So was it also during the capitalist industrial revolution when the newly developing states were in Europe. It is not a question simply of some technical economic argument, but of sides in a class struggle. The question is, which side are you on? Two, it is argued that the mass of people in these countries are too backward to control the society and its government. And this is no doubt true, not only there, but what follows? How does a people or class become fit to rule in their own name? Only by fighting to do so only by waging their struggle against oppression, oppression by those who tell them they are unfit to govern, only by fighting for democratic power do they educate themselves and raise themselves up to the level of being able to wield that power. There has never been any other way for any class. 
Although we have been considering a particular line of apologia, the two points which emerged do, in fact, apply all over the world, in every country, advanced or developing, capitalist or Stalinist. When the demonstrations and boycotts of the Southern Negroes threatened to embarrass President Johnson as he faced an election, the question was, which side are you on? When the Hungarian people erupted in revolt against the Russian occupier, the question was, which side are you on? When the Algerian people fought for liberation against the socialist government of Guy Mollet, the question was, which side are you on? When Cuba was invaded by Washington's puppets, the question was, which side are you on? And when the Cuban trade unions are taken over by the commissars of the dictatorship, the question is also, which side are you on? Since the beginning of society, there has been no end of theories proving that tyranny is inevitable and that freedom in democracy is impossible. There is no more convenient ideology for a ruling class and its intellectual flunkies. These are self-fulfilling predictions, since they remain true only as long as they are taken to be true. In the last analysis, the only way of proving them false is the struggle itself. That struggle from below has never been stopped by the theories from above, and it has changed the world time and again. To choose any of the forms of socialism from above is to look back to the old world, to the old crap. To choose the road of socialism from below is to affirm the beginning of a new world. We'll keep the red flag flying here.